I, I do a podcast. I'm not, I'm not interested in your podcast. The anathema of God was for those who denied justification by faith alone. When that is at stake, we need to be on the battlefield exposing the air and combating the air. We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple Reform on the radio, you know. We are polemical and polarizing Jesus style. I would first say that to characterize what we do as fashion is itself fashion. It's not hate, it's history, it's not fashion, it's the Bible. Jesus said, Woe to you and men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, as opposed to blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It is on. We're taking the gloves off. It's time to battle. Many Christians today do not seem to realize that we are in a spiritual war. But one can hardly read the New Testament without coming to realize that from the time of its inception, the church has been under relentless attack. Throughout church history, much of this has come in the form of physical persecution, and when that occurs, it is easy to recognize. But there is another form of attack that is more subtle and more dangerous. It is an attack that is not just meant to kill the body, but is also meant to kill the soul. This, of course, is a spiritual attack through false teaching. The New Testament repeatedly warns us, not only that false teachers will come, but that when they do come, it will be through great deception. Jesus warned, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Matthew 7.15 It is not difficult to grasp the meaning of this, but it is difficult when faced with the challenge of spotting a wolf in sheep's clothing. This is due to the fact that they look just like the sheep. The challenge we face is not just simply spotting these wolves in sheep's clothing, but it is also calling it to the attention of the church. Whenever someone points out a wolf in sheep's clothing, they are sure to be confronted by others who will immediately defend the wolf by pointing out the sheep's clothing. People tend to get angry when others call their favorite teacher a wolf in sheep's clothing. Rather than being upset by the fact that the gospel is being subverted and obscured, it would seem that many get upset at those who call it to their attention. This is why Paul asked the Galatians, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Galatians 4.16 The reality is that many people have not stopped to consider the incredibly deceptive nature of false teachers. Yet Paul also warned of the deceptive nature of false teachers when he wrote, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, 2 Corinthians 11.13 These men were wolves in sheep's clothing. They disguised themselves as apostles of Christ. John Robbins also saw this in scripture and wrote the following, quote, Heretics introduced false ideas stealthily, but this occurred because a false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, Galatians 2.4, and, 
for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Jude 4. They appear to be sheep, but are not, and the ideas they teach at least at first appear to be true, but are not. By their smooth words they deceive many into thinking that they are Christian brothers and the ideas they advance are biblical. Close quote. The reason many people today are unable to accept that certain teachers are actually false teachers is that they have not wrestled with this in scripture. They wrongly assume that the wolf in sheep's clothing is trying to deceive people out of malicious intent. When someone calls a teacher they like a wolf in sheep's clothing, they ask, so you think he's really trying to deceive people and lead everyone astray? Then they dismiss the warning out of disbelief because the teacher they like is really sincere in what he teaches. After all, Joel Osteen looks like a genuinely nice person. The truth is that these wolves in sheep's clothing believe they are sheep. These false teachers believe they are teaching the truth because they are self-deceived. Let's not overlook the fact that Bruce Jenner, a man, has gone to great lengths to disguise himself to look like a woman because he somehow believes that he is a woman. Such is the nature of self-deception. People do not seem to recognize that these deceivers do what they do and teach what they teach because they are themselves deceived. They believe they are serving and following God. This is why Jesus warned, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. John 16.2 the Bible warns us that false teachers will come and that they will be extremely deceptive when they arrive. Therefore, it is necessary to take a moment to discuss three key insights which will allow us to navigate the murky waters of controversy and spot false teachers. False teachers use scripture. First, we must recognize that false teachers use scripture to teach their false doctrine. This should not surprise us, and we should not be duped into thinking that their teaching is therefore biblical. It is a strange thing to realize that false teachers will use the Bible to teach their anti-biblical views. This is called twisting the scriptures, and it is exactly what Satan, who is a liar and the father of lies, John 8.44, did when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. In Matthew's account we read the following, then the devil took him to the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. When Satan tempted Jesus to prove that he was the Son of God, by throwing himself down from the pinnacle of the temple, he quoted Psalms 91, verses 11 and 12 and twisted its meaning. Clearly, the passage is a promise from God, but it did not mean that Jesus could use it to test God. This is why Jesus responded by saying, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Matthew 4, verse 7. Today we have countless examples of false teachers twisting scripture to teach false doctrine. Mormons will use the Bible in an effort to substantiate Mormon doctrine. Word of faith preachers will constantly use passages like John 10.10 10 and 2 Corinthians 8.9 to teach their false prosperity gospel. Every Christian needs to be aware of this deceptive tactic and needs to embrace the all-important principle of the Reformation that Scripture interprets Scripture. They speak our language. 
The second insight we must learn is that false teachers use biblical terms and orthodox language but change their meaning. John Robbins pointed this out when he wrote, quote, The most effective attack on the truth, the most subversive attack on the doctrine of the completeness and efficacy of the work of Christ for the salvation of his people is always couched in pious language and biblical phraseology. Close quote. This is why it is necessary to define our terms. However, this practice of deception is not limited to single words. When it is a single word that is given two meanings, we call that equivocation. But when it is a phrase, we call that amphibology. Christians, Mormons, and Jehovah's Witnesses all say that, quote, Jesus is the Son of God, close quote. Here we have an example of both equivocation and amphibology, because we all mean something entirely different by the word Jesus, and we all mean something entirely different by the phrase Son of God. When Mormons speak of Jesus, they mean the spirit brother of Satan, and when they say that he is the Son of God, they mean that he was first a spirit-born being who had a beginning, and that Heavenly Father had sex with Mary in order that he should be born here on earth. When Jehovah's Witnesses speak of Jesus, they mean that he is Michael the Archangel, and he is the Son of God because he was the first being or thing created by Jehovah. When Christians speak of Jesus, we mean that he is the second person of the Trinity, and the title Son of God means that he is the unique one who is God made manifest in the flesh. It is essential for Christians to realize that these tactics of deception are not limited to these obvious examples. Every heretic in history has taught their heresy while using scripture and orthodox language. But there is yet a third insight we must learn, and that has to do with language and logic. The Sufficiency of Language and the Necessity of Logic Christians must recognize that language and logic are sufficient for communication. God has given us the gift of language for communication, and because we are made in the image of God, we necessarily think in terms of logic. Therefore, we are expected to make logical deductions and inferences. The Bible speaks to us in such a way that it assumes our ability to do this, and we are given numerous examples of logic in Scripture. In Matthew 22, verses 23 through 28, the Sadducees attack the resurrection by presenting Jesus a question about marriage and the afterlife. Jesus first responded by correcting their understanding of the scriptures and pointed out that marriage ends at death. Then he said, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Matthew 22, verses 31 and 32. The passage Jesus quoted says, I am the God of Abraham, not I was the God of Abraham. The verb is in the present tense, not the past tense. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are living, and Jesus refuted the Sadducees first by pointing them back to the scriptures, and then by deducing the resurrection from the tense of a verb. The Sadducees were expected to believe the resurrection, and so are we which means that we are expected to believe not only that which is expressly stated, but also that which may be deduced from Scripture. 
The principle of making logical deductions was so vital to the Protestant Reformation that it was given confessional status in the Westminster Confession of Faith. In chapter 1, paragraph 6, the Westminster reads, quote, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, close quote. This was critical to understanding God's word, because doctrines such as the Trinity, or the covenant of works, or the covenant of redemption, are not explicitly stated in Scripture, but are, by good and necessary consequence, deduced from Scripture. It is imperative that we be willing to make logical deductions. Unfortunately, we live in an age of anti-intellectualism and irrationalism, and many people do not recognize the significant threat that this poses to the church. The inability or unwillingness to make logical deductions will prevent us from understanding God's word and it will keep us from recognizing those who detract from it. Imagine, two men are talking and the first man says to the second man, All Mexicans are lazy. The second man then looks at him and asks, Why would you call Carlos lazy? He's a Mexican and he's one of the hardest working guys I know. The first man gets upset and fires back. I didn't say anything about Carlos being lazy. You're putting words in my mouth. You're taking me out of context. You're misrepresenting me. The logic here is simple. If all Mexicans are lazy, and Carlos is a Mexican, then Carlos is lazy. The second man was not misrepresenting the first man, or putting words in his mouth, or taking him out of context. He accepted the statement and made a valid deduction thereby ensuring that the first man was represented accurately. The first man was guilty of saying that Carlos was lazy, but he chose to be irrational because of the stubbornness of his heart. He didn't want to face the fact that he had insulted Carlos directly, even though it wasn't expressly stated. This type of irrational behavior is quite typical of people today. They falsely accuse others of misrepresenting them, and accuse them of committing a straw man fallacy because they don't want to accept the consequences of their position. The straw man fallacy is quite possibly the most abused and misapplied informal logical fallacy because people tend to be prideful, irrational, and refuse to accept that they are wrong. But this is where the Christian needs to stand firm and insist on rational discourse. Simply because somebody has reduced your position to absurdity, and you're not willing to accept the logical conclusion, does not mean that they have misrepresented you. It means you should change your views. We do not need to back down when people falsely accuse us of misrepresentation, but we do need to be very concerned about representing others accurately and fairly. The question is, how do we do this? Well, the answer really is quite simple. We accept their statements at face value, allow them to define their terms, and we make valid inferences or deductions. That's it. It is important, however, to point out that when we say that the deductions or inferences are valid, we do not mean it is true. We simply mean that the conclusion necessarily follows from the premises. We can make a valid deduction from a false premise, which would make the conclusion false. In the example above, we see that the conclusion that Carlos was lazy necessarily followed from the premise but the conclusion was false. This is because the premise that all Mexicans are lazy is false. 
In order to have an argument that is sound, we must have true premises and a valid deduction. When we make a valid deduction or inference from scripture, the arguments are always sound, and the conclusions are necessarily true. This is because God's word is truth. Quote, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. Thank you for tuning in. God bless.